Okay, so yeah, this week, as I said, we're going to be looking at the Word of God, kind of what it is all about, what it means. And the passage is Luke 11, 29 to 32. But to start with, we're going to have a bit of a discussion, a bit of a chat. Kind of want to get some of your thoughts on what you think the Word of God is. Do you think God speaks through his word? And have you ever heard him speak? Kind of have you had any personal experiences with this? So with this, you know, just kind of jump jump around, bounce ideas with each other, just kind of go for it, really. And yeah, what, what do you guys think about that? I think um, God does speak, like he speaks through prophets and he speaks personally, but it's very rare that he actually speaks directly to a person because God is so mighty and so heavenly. For him to speak to us is, it's just something so powerful that not a lot of us can take it. Um, like the, the people... In the Old Testament, very much struggled when they um, touched God or, or had the, um, you know, experience of God. When they touched the Ark of the Covenant, they basically died from it. But like um, in Timothy, it says the word of Scripture is God breathed, meaning it's all written by God. So we have God's word written to us right here in Scripture. So yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with all of that. I've personally found that God speaks through people more than he does directly to me. But I think, uh, yeah, like through like wise people and people that you trust and stuff that are quite experienced. That's why I find the word of God is more through. I find a, a bigger thing to keep in mind when, um, when you think that God is, is speaking to you is that you always need to um, back up this, um, this word by, say, reading the bible or um or sharing it with someone else and see if they feel the same feel the same way me and my, and my family have gone through the same process um when we feel like god's told us something we share with each other or we look in the bible see something that backs it or or something, something like that yeah it's like you know testing differentiating between what is god speaking and what is just kind of us thinking you know testing that against scripture testing that against um, you know, elders or other people who are further along in their faith journey than we might be. Yeah, 100%, definitely. I, I want to give a personal experience about where I was like, um, not sure about if the army was the right career to go into as a Christian. And I was really like worried that I was going, going against God's calling sort of thing. So I consulted with a teacher in my discipleship school. And um, I, I spent a long time talking with him about is it right? And um, he gave me so much wisdom from that to be able to sort of understand that it was okay for me to go into the army as long as I was bold about my faith. So, yeah, it is the right thing to do. And that's sort of hearing God's word from the wisdom of a elder. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. That's kind of just shows that kind of personal connection that we can have with others and that they can really speak into kind of problems or issues that we might be wrestling with. Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of along the lines of what Rosie was saying, like speaks um, through her through people. Um, I kind of feel like through actions, God can speak to me too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's, that's some really, really great points there that have kind of come out of that. And yeah, you know, there's kind of this idea that, you know, God does speak to us today, not quite in the you know, manner as in like that we might speak to a, a friend or that we might speak to someone else. But yeah, I mean, Theo, as you touched on right at the start, we have the word of God written down in 
the Bible, we have 66 books of God-breathed literature. And I think a really great way to hear God speak is just to read that and just to wait on that. And then, you know, anything that comes out of that, you can go to your, you know, elders, go to people, you know, people that you trust to kind of um, talk things through. And we've seen, you know, through Theo's story that that can be really, really helpful. And yeah, I mean, a verse that Theo's already mentioned, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. You know, the implications of this are absolutely astounding. You know, we have 66 books of God's words written down here now accessible to us in a book or literally a, a couple of clicks on a phone or a laptop. We can have God's word there and for us. But it's important to remember that, you know, the word of God is not just like any other words. It's not just like any other great novel like, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or you know, any, any other books that have been written. You know, it says in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We can see that God's word is not just meaningless text, but that God's word has power. A bit of kind of context for you, the double-edged sword that Paul describes in uh, his letter to the Hebrews, he would have been referring to a gladius, which was uh, carried by Roman soldiers. And it basically, it was just your traditional short sword. It would have been a point with blade on both sides, about the length of a fully grown man's forearm. And we can see that, you know, God's word has power. This is powerful imagery here used by Paul. And it shows that God's word is sharp, divisive, very real and tangible. You know, it's not just some kind of mystical thing, but it is right here and it is real and it is for us. And we have access to this through scripture. And so, yeah, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is quite a short one. And it's from Luke. So Luke 11, 29 to 32. So it's just three verses. And I was wondering if anyone would be keen to read that um, to us. That was Luke 11, 29 to 32. I'll be happy to if you want, Luke. Want, yeah, want. sure. That'd be great. Thank you. The sign of Jonah. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign of the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came down from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Cool. Right. Yes. Yeah, so um, this passage, the sign of Jonah, it's almost likened to a parable in a way. You know, we can see that Jesus is trying to teach us something through this. He's using Old Testament symbolism and accounts to draw comparison and clarity to what he is here for and to call us to action to call us to respond to his teaching so it's essential to you know when we look at this passage it's essential to understand what jesus was referring to and why he was referring to this so we can see it's all about the sign of jonah so you've got to look at jonah who he was what he was called to do and what he did you know and this is essential to understanding this passage and it carries a huge weight of meaning 
So I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on this. What can anyone tell me about Jonah? You know, his story, who he was, uh, you know, etc. Just anything that anyone can remember about Jonah from the Bible. Wasn't he sent by God to sort of tell a city to stop doing something? And, and the, he had quite an interesting journey um, getting there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anything else? From the, top, from the top of my head, in the Bible, the official story is that um, God commanded him to go to Nineveh, I believe it's the city, and which is called, called in the evil city, I believe. And at first, Jonah was reluctant to go and tried to flee from God um, on a boat, but ends up getting swallowed by a fish, and the fish takes him to Nineveh directly. And, and Jonah reaches the word to the Ninevites, and they repented. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much the whole story summed up nicely there between um, Arthur and Elliot. That was great. So, yeah, we've got Jonah. Jonah is a minor prophet around in the mid-8th century BC, so about 760 BC. And Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, um, which was the Assyrian centre of that region, basically. It was kind of like the key city for the Assyrians and he was to go there and to tell the Assyrians who lived there or the Ninevites um, to repent but instead actually you know Jonah flees to the west so he started um, and from where he was called uh, Nineveh was to the east and he went to the west he was meant to go over land but he got on a boat and went to somewhere in the Mediterranean or tried to at least and then, yeah, uh, that kind of journey across the Mediterranean didn't quite go as planned. And he ends up uh, going overboard and being, as you say, being picked up by a big fish. And then he goes to Nineveh. So an interesting thing to kind of touch on is that Jonah actually means dove in Hebrew. And the kind of traditional, I guess, meaning behind the animal of a dove is that it's easily deceived and senseless. You know, it can seem we can seem sometimes devout on the outside, but on the inside, don't want to do what God says. And we can see that actually that's exactly what Jonah was like. You know, he tried to run away. It says that three times he tried to, you know, run away from God, but still God loves him. And that's a key thing that we're going to be looking at, that idea of boundless and relentless love and mercy that God pours out onto us every single day. So, yeah, this book, as I said, it's about this boundless nature of God's mercy. You know, God's love is without limits and beyond comprehension. So the kind of overall structure of the book is it's split up into seven episodes, two sets of three and then one standalone. And it's through this structure that we can actually see we can see the story played out. So it starts off the first set of three episodes. Uh, you have Jonah's commission and flight. You know, God calls Jonah. And then we have the second part, Jonah with the pagan sailors. The third part, Jonah's grateful prayer. And then that's that concludes set one. So, yeah, we've got this first set of three episodes. And then we move on to the second set, which is almost a repeat. We can see that this is about Jonah's recommission and his compliance. And then Jonah with the pagan Ninevites, Jonah's angry prayer. And that you can see the parallels quite clearly there. And then the kind of grand finale is Jonah's lesson that he learns about compassion. Now, giving you the general overview, we're kind of going to delve into that a bit more. So we're going to look at the first set of three, Jonah's commission and flight. We can see that actually 
even if we look at Jonah 1 verse 1, it opens with, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is quite a common theme throughout the prophets, throughout the minor prophets. They often all start with the word of the Lord came to prophet, son of whoever. And that's that's quite a common thing. And that shows that, you know, God's word is alive and active. So Jonah gets this calling from God and he is called to go to Nineveh to tell the people there to repent. But we can see in verse three, Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He literally got up and fled, totally ignoring God's command, even though he spoke directly to him. And we can see his method of escape. He gets on a boat. And when he's on this boat, there's this massive storm, a mighty tempest, uh, it says in verse four. And the only way to calm it is to throw Jonah overboard. And we can see that while Jonah is on this boat, you know, they are in grave danger, but he is talking to them about the one true God. And there's actually some parallels to be seen here between Jonah and his story and the life of Jesus. We can see that Jonah was willing to throw himself overboard to save the other men on the boat. You know, this likens the sacrifice, the death and the resurrection of God's son, Jesus. So we can see that, you know, after Jonah has jumped overboard, he didn't deserve saving and he didn't expect to be saved. Yet out of God's great compassion, he saved him. And we can see that, you know, the, the third part of this first episode, Jonah is swallowed by a great fish that was appointed by God. You know, if you look up at the kind of the natural inhabitants of the Mediterranean Sea, you're not going to find a fish big enough to eat a man. But it says clearly here that this fish had been appointed by God. So it's obvious that God sent a fish from another part of the ocean to the Mediterranean to pick up Jonah. So just because there's not fish there now doesn't mean this story didn't happen. So you can see that, you know, after Jonah has been swallowed by this great fish, he prays this amazing prayer of thanks, which I'm actually just going to read for you now. So this is from, from Jonah 2, and I'm reading from verse 9. So he concludes his prayer and he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we can see that, you know, after this, the fish spits him out onto the beach. And that concludes the first part of the book of Jonah. And we can see here the clear parallels. You know, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That can, again, be likened to Jesus, who died and was in the ground for three days and three nights before he rose again. So anyway, looking back to Jonah, we can see that we've had this first episode. Jonah's been called and he flees. He goes against God's will. Yet still, even though he has wronged God, God steps in and he saves him. And he's like, look, you're getting a second chance. And this is where we see Jonah's recommission and compliance. At the start of chapter three, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You know, it's interesting that, you know, to think that, you know, God speaks to him a second time and he chooses to listen. And I think that's a challenge to us. You know, when we hear God speak, do we listen? And that's just important to think about. You know, this is God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the whole universe. He speaks to us through others, through his word. Do we listen to that and do we allow that to shape our hearts? So anyway, Jonah, he hears this. He goes to Nineveh. It doesn't matter that Jonah messed up and literally went in the opposite direction to what God told him to do. 
God forgives him and loves him in spite of his inadequacies, which I believe is really powerful for us today. As you know, we are all sinners, but God still out of his great grace gave his son to die for us and he loves us and forgives us. So we can see this second part, you know, Jonah, he, he goes to Nineveh and he talks to the Ninevites. It's important to remember that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and the Assyrians were Israel's sworn enemies. You know, that's why Jonah didn't want to go. They were literally like the last place that he could possibly think of going. But we can see here that he goes and he follows the calling of God, even when it goes against what culture thinks that he should do. You know, I can almost guarantee that other Israelites would have thought, oh, you know, why is he going to Nineveh? It just doesn't seem to fit in. But that's okay because, you know, the gospel is countercultural. Ultimately, we're not meant to fit in. We're meant to stand out because we live for Christ and not for the world. So we can see here that after Jonah goes to Ninevites, he tells them that they must repent. You know, they must repent or in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's exactly what happens. You know, the people from the lowest of the low up to the king, though it was not an actual king, it's more just symbolic for a king, such as a royal stand-in, a royal appointee. You know, they repent from ev everyone in the city, which we see later is about 120,000 people. They all repent. But an essential thing I want to kind of pick up on here is that this idea of repentance is not just saying sorry. It's not just saying sorry and then continuing to live in the sin that we have said sorry for. It is saying sorry and having a complete change, a total 180 away from the life that we were living in to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to live for him instead of the world. And we can see how the people of Nineveh did this uh, through Jonah 3, 6 to 7, which reads, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water and you know this idea that you know the king of Nineveh he instilled a great fast to show their repentance he is highlighting that he is actually doing what Jonah is telling him to do what God is telling him to do through Jonah and we can see here, uh, Jonah 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned away, there's that key word again, turned, complete 180 degrees. When they turned away from their evil ways, he relented. God relented the disaster. What great compassion. But, you know, it's essential to remember that salvation is not based on our own ability. It's all because of the grace and love of God. So we can see now that, you know, we've had Jonah has been with the pagan Ninevites. He's spoken to them, but he's he's angry. We can see in this kind of last half of the second part of the book of Jonah, Jonah is angry. He could not understand how God could forgive Nineveh. And this is where the final lesson comes in. This clearly shows that God has great and immense love and compassion for all, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of your past, regardless of anything that's happened. God has love and compassion for all. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus. Just look at Jesus and what he did for us. God sent his only son to die on the cross for us, to take the punishment that we deserve. An utterly sinless and perfect man died 
on the cross and took the wrath of God upon him so that we could enter into a relationship with the one true God. And we can clearly see the power of God's word through the story of Jonah. Jonah only preached five words in Hebrew. Um, while those five words in Hebrew, Hebrew are about eight words in English, that's still amazing that through five words, a whole city of 120,000 people repented. But it's essential to remember that that is not because of Jonah's eloquence. He wasn't some great public speaker, some amazing, I don't know, like speech writer. He didn't have a fantastic way with words. You know, it was all because of God. Salvation is not based on our own ability. If we just partner with God, he will use us. And I think another really important thing to take out of this is that we mustn't just preach the good news to those who we think will respond well. You know, we're not just called just to preach the good news to people who maybe came to church when they were a kid or to people whose parents might be Christians or to people who might have Christian friends. We're called to preach to everyone. You know, Jonah went to pagan Ninevites, Israel's enemies, and we can see that salvation came to them not through fancy words, but through the power of the word of God. And it all comes down, it all boils down to the parable of the sower. The farmer, he walks across his field and he sows to everyone, regardless of the soil. He doesn't pick and choose which soil to sow onto. He sows to all the soil, but he doesn't make the seed grow. It's God who makes the seed grow. And that's an essential thing to remember. So now, after that kind of brief whistle-stop tour of Jonah, we're going to jump back to the passage uh, in Luke 11. So this passage is called the sign of Jonah. And it says that, you know, verse 30 um, or verse 29, the crowd want a sign. And Jesus is saying, look, this generation is evil. They want a sign, but there's no sign that will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And we can see here that Jonah being assigned to the Ninevites, this is a call to repent and submit to the one true God. You know, Jonah went to Nineveh and he was like, look, you all need to change your ways. You need to repent. You need to do that 180 because currently you're living in sin and destruction will come in 40 days if you don't do this. And, you know, that again is paralleled in this passage here in Luke. Jesus is assigned to the generation. We can see here that when Jesus says it, it says, you know, for as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, past tense, so will the son of man be to this generation. There's this idea of um, the future coming in here. And that's because Jesus is speaking this passage before his death and resurrection. We can see that, you know, Jonah, as I said earlier, he spent three days and three nights in the fish and Jesus spent three nights and days in the heart of the earth. And then he was raised. And that is the sign that Jesus is talking about here. So this clearly shows how pivotal and crucial the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is to Christianity. I mean, even Paul says that, you know, without this, like there is no point. If Christ did not die and rise again, then there is nothing. But we know that he did. And it's because of that that we can have the eternal hope in Christ and in forgiveness and love and eternal life that we have through Christ's death and resurrection. So the next part of this passage in Luke is talking about the Queen of the South. This little bit in Luke, talking about the Queen of the South, is a reference to the Queen of Sheba, who travelled from modern-day Yemen, Somalia, uh, kind of in that region, to Jerusalem, just to see Solomon. 
she had heard about Solomon's great wisdom and she traveled about 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers just to see him, just to hear his wisdom. And, you know, he, she was amazed at his wisdom, which was given to him by God. And this glorified God, you know, this gift that he had been given pointed to God. And I think that's a challenge to us. You know, do we use our gifts that God has given us to point back to God? Do we make sure that the focus is never on ourselves, but always on Christ? Because everything is given through God's great grace and mercy. And we must in turn use our gifts to glorify him. So we can see here that, you know, if the queen of Sheba traveled in response to Solomon's Proverbs, we cannot remain unmoved by the 66 books of the Bible that we have today. We are called to respond to this. And we can see here that you know, Jesus is saying, look, if the queen of Sheba did this, look, something far greater than Solomon is here. It's obvious that Jesus is greater than Solomon. You know, Jesus is the son of God. But it's also the fact that Jesus Jesus's wisdom is greater than Solomon's wisdom. There's this idea that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And we can see here, verse 32, Nineveh repented at Jonah. There's comparisons between Jesus and Jonah here. And the, this kind of comparison that is drawn is actually propped up by the geographical considerations. Jonah was from a region called gath Hepha, which was a town in Galilee, just under three miles north of Nazareth. They were actually on the same ridgeline. You could see one from the other and vice versa. So we can see that, you know, Jesus, as I said, he's not only the ultimate prophet, but he is the Lord of the prophets. He, you know, as we saw earlier, like months ago, looking at Jesus's lineage, Jesus um, is descended directly from kingship and priesthood. And we can see here that, you know, he is a prophet too. He is the perfect Messiah and he is far greater than Jonah. And this kind of language here where it's talking about how the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation. What Jesus is talking about here is how the Ninevites listened to Jonah and they repented. They turned their lives around. But the first century Jews did not listen to something that is far greater than Jonah. And that is why they will be condemned. You know, it all kind of boils down to Micah 6, 8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. You know, support the weak, recognize that we are nothing without God. So to really just kind of wrap this up, we've got to look at the takeaway from the book of Jonah. I already said that, you know, the book of Jonah is looking at God's boundless mercy, love and compassion that he pours out on an absolutely undeserving nation. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. You know, we've got to remember that we are no better than the Ninevites were. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can see that, you know, sin is sin. It doesn't matter if it's a quote, big sin or a little sin. Sin is sin in God's eyes. But if we read on in that Romans passage, verse 24, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I just really want to focus in on this, this verse for a second and focus in especially on the word justified. Justified literally means declared and made righteous in the sight of God. How does that happen? That happens through Christ and Christ clearly shows the power of God's love. Such mercy was poured out to us on the cross as Jesus died for our sins. You know, just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, Jesus's death and resurrection is a sign for us all today. 
we are called to repent and believe to do a complete 180 degrees do not keep living in sin but turn to face jesus submit to him and freely receive the free gift of eternal life it's also important to remember that there ultimately will be judgment but jesus has already paid that price he has paid the price for our sin so that we don't have to we can see that um you know galatians 2 20 i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me you know we're called to live for god to share the good news and this passage the sign of jonah is clearly highlighting that we mustn't miss this sign we must as micah 6 8 reads act justly love mercy walk humbly like the good samaritan just to live utterly focused on god even when that means going against what society what culture thinks because we have an eternal hope that is stored up in heaven and we are marked with the seal of the holy spirit should we believe and welcome god into our lives but yes that's all from me this evening and we're going to break out into some small groups in a second to kind of discuss this a bit further but that is everything for this evening i just was reading the scripture but before the verse before 29 which says is jesus saying um in response to isabel blessed rather are those who hear the word of god and obey it and um it just links so well to, to the passage of the sign of jonah that you know we're blessed if we hear god and obey it and we already have so much from god uh we have the sign of jonah we have the wisdom of solomon we have the stories of david um everything in the bible we already have and now we also have jesus and the letters of paul and the letters of peter and everything else so if we choose to hear that and obey it then god will bless us we don't need to wait for another sign like sometimes we wait upon god to give us another message but the message is here already in scripture